You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson, uh, thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. Um, as always, I am your host. I teach English here at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, and I do this on the side. And uh, I appreciate uh, hearing from you all. I get some emails, some nice emails here um, every every so often, and uh, and I love to communicate with listeners. So please drop us a line at sectarianreview at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and all that kind of stuff, too. Um, today, we're going to have one of our our uh, all-time favorite guest, uh, C. Derek Varn, is back on the show. Uh, at his request, he, uh, he's he been uh, chomping at the bit to say some things. I think he feels like he can say things on this show more easily than other places he appears, but I'll let him talk about that. Derek, how you doing? Oh. I've been better, but I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I know this is not like anybody's peak time of life. I'm sure right now there's lots of things going on and much of this is going to be coming up. Derek is a teacher too. And so, um, like this has, this COVID thing has had a, a profound impact and continuing, um, complication for working in education, uh, both on kind of logistical and professional levels, but also ethical ones. And, uh, and so, um, I think we're going to get into some of that today. We're also going to be talking about a book review that I actually, um, wanted Derek's opinion on, uh, from the LA review of books. We'll get into that a little bit, but Derek, you want to talk a little bit, uh, you want to read a poem, I think first, right? Yeah. So I'm going to read this poem called overdose Psalm, and I'll explain why it's related to everything we're going to talk about today. It's from I Know Your Kind Poems by William Brewer. This is about, it's largely about what happened to Appalachia um, during the opioid epidemic. Um, it's a few years old. Brewer is kind of a, a younger poet, younger than me. But anyway, over to Psalm. For how long and why I cannot say, but in the wake of the great spruce falling, everything, the axe, its weight in my chapped hands, the skirt of, gold, of golden trunk shavings, the tree like an overturned ship, is so altered by light, so foreign, I can't believe it's what I went after. If I was after anything, and to think I would survive. It can't be, though, as is so often is the case, it is. The column of light breaking through the black woods, only a reminder of one once resisted it. I'm beginning to think that resistance is everything. How it kept what is now trees leading to a clearing, a forest. Snow committing its slow occupancy, filling the column like words. The light saying in so few of them, like all terrible truths, something here did not survive. Um, and Many years ago, you and I talked about the book Hillbilly Elegy, and I told you that uh, the book was this book spoke a lot to me, but it was also perverse because um, the conditions it described were honest, 
and often denied by leftists, just outright denied, and uh, the answers it gave were moralizing horse poop. So <laughs> I totally agree with that assessment, actually, um, coming from <laughs> Appalachia myself. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, it was something I was thinking about coming in today about um, the concept of discernment and the way we want to deal with with uh, you know kinds of freedom. Um, but I also think the context for those freedoms um, is is interesting. Um, and so one of the things that I keyed in on when Kloon was critiquing um, Hagelin's socialist freedom, he makes two critiques, one of which I think is spurious and one of which I think is very, very real. Um, oh, just to uh, orient the audience a little bit, we're talking about a, a, a book a book review in the LA Review of Books by Michael Kloon um, of Martin Hagelin's book, This Life. Um, and um, and Kloon has a mostly positive, uh, I think, review of it, but I think he is actually... A critical of it in other ways too, um, in, in the way that he can do. Um, full disclosure, Michael Clune is actually someone I know. Um, he was actually on my dissertation committee uh, uh. back in grad school. Um, I, he had only been there a couple years before I, when, when I was in process of writing and he was sort of added on late. I don't know him well, but um, I have had many conversations, several conversations with him and, and I, I know him a little bit. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm very much a fan of his work. Uh, and so when I read this article it kind of seemed like something i feel like saying myself about certain things although i have not read Haglund's book um and i just want to kind of get derek's uh opinion about it as well because he's sort of my my rabbi with these subjects so um so one of the things i think that that clune does here that i disagree with is because he talks about the way pricing works um based on desire scarcity and demand um that he assumes the larger profit margins and value in the economy are equal to that. Um, they're not. I'm just going to say, like, there's... I can go into the technical reasons as to why, but rentier economies, which are largely based off, like, our desires, and we think about all the consumer choices we make, but most of what we purchase and most of what we deal with on a day-to-day -day life is not anything we want. Mm -hmm. It's things we need. And those things we need have a declining profit margin over time. Uh, you, that's not even contested in neoclassical economics. Now, the reason why I think that is true does have to do with labor theory of value. The issue that, Hag, uh, that Hagland does kind of sneak in there, though, is he kind of conflates values with, with value. There's a kind of equation... Uh, equivocation game and that that's also common in like European postmodernism to do this to like you know think that Marx is talking about value in this broader sense when really all he's talking about is the way you can get aggregate profits to generate an abstract number that can act as a proxy to wealth but also hide it mm -hmm. all right that's what abstract value our you know you know extra value comes. It is generated by the difference between the labor put into something and what you get out, except in the case of things that involve rents. And what you will notice 
is in the latter half of the 20th century after financialization more and more of our life is not actually buying commodities but taking part in rents um, even that, like music consumption even like exactly. Apple, yeah you subscribe to streaming services rather than own um, physical objects now because the physical objects are so easy to produce that they have very little value because they're just easy to acquire. And so moving them from an ownership model to a rents model is the only way to sustain the industry. But rents require a stronger state, which means that all the stuff you hear about this dynamic capitalist competition force is actually not true anymore and it probably hasn't been for a long time. And this is even true in physical commodities. R&D has been outsourced since the 1920s, since the, the wires of the Soviet Union. Um, and most of our high technological advances come from that. So what I found interesting here is Kloon like, wants to be sympathetic to socialism, but he makes what is effectively a neoliberal argument, even though he cites Stephen Keen, a post-Keynesian economist, who, um, who I both like that book, but the chapter specifically he mentions I laughed at because he thinks that like Marx doesn't include... Um, that Marx's equation means that like there's no value added by technology or something. It's just he doesn't understand the efficiency. He literally misrepresents Marx's argument. Okay. Um, and your humanities professor friend, frankly, while he was talking about technical economics, did not seem to actually understand the critiques Marxists made of that, and he went to literary Marxists instead of economic Marxists to make that discussion. Interesting. He went to Althusser and Jamerson. He's not talking about. Marxist economist who actually do have answers for the problem that he's bringing up. Even the quasi-economist David Harvey is not actually a Marxist economist. He's a Marxist geographer. Right. <laughs> that is true. I did know that. Um, incidentally, um, Kloon, um, one of, was his first book? Um, it's called, oh gosh, something about the economic fiction. Um, he, he, he actually writes about, um, post-war American literature um, from a, a kind of, as an economic analysis of it. So it's actually kind of a really interesting um, analysis of the way in which economic value becomes the subject of, of a certain kind of American fiction. Um, and he looks at like rap and everything too. He looks at a lot of different kinds of genres, but um, it's an academic book, but it's one I, I do recommend. Right. So in America, we have to look at a lot of things when we talk about this and so talking about capitalism and all that in such an abstract way I've become to believe even when I do, I do think the way these systems worked is somewhat predetermined actually hides more than it explains and I wanted to read this uh, poem about overdosing mm -hmm. and about the way we exist in these worlds and about these desires and where they come from um, because this is a part of Clune's argument though where I think he has a point mm. If we just freed up everyone's time and removed capitalism, but they still had the consciousness of what we had now, um, they would desire things like we have now. To just make an efficiency argument that, that, that dumping stuff into, say, status competition um, is a waste of time is actually anthropologically idiotic. Status competition and capricious consumption for status competition predates capitalism. It is not caused by capitalism. Mm -hmm. If anything, capitalism strives on it, and it's one of the areas that distorts this whole, this whole commodity thing I was talking about. 
All right, it actually is a countervailing force that Marxists generally have not dealt with. Um, it's real. It's to me, it's anthropologically undeniably real, but it is not unique to capitalism. So saying that you just free up the time and you just have that status consumption go, you know, away immediately, so you're not keeping up with the Joneses anymore, ignores that humans value fairness in a way that leads to perverse outcomes because we want to be approximately equal to our peers. However, we also want to distinguish ourselves for our peers as a way of, you know, whatever. I'm sure Christians probably see this as part of the fallen nature of man. Right? Um. I would have to think about that, but that sounds right to me. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but to me, it is a contradiction that this drive for equality that we have within ourselves actually in and of itself leads to status competition in relatively small scale, uncomplicated societies. This competition is actually good and keeps everybody pretty much on the same keel. So you think about like the thousands of years if you believe in that sort of thing, but I think it's unquestionable. I'm just for your Christian audiences. I don't know if anyone's like a a, a short, uh, oh, you know, a short of creationist or whatever. I don't think I have too many of those in my audience. <laughs> um, I actually think right. that's a relatively small segment of Christianity, anyway. But, oh, I but, do too. <laughs> but I I grew up with them, so I did I'm too. Gonna, <laughs> um, so if you look at that the way we developed. That was actually productive, probably until agriculture. So it's not. It's, this is not even modernity, but it, it is still a relatively short phase in our in our you know long durée of biological development. Mm -hmm. um, and after agriculture, this leads to a bunch of things. And like, if you think about the way agricultural societies work. If you don't have status competition and more division of labor, and you're a bunch of peasant farmers on the Asian steppes, you're dead. Mm. So you make trade-offs for protection. And so these status things that lead to relatively egalitarian societies, they're not without hierarchy. Like when I talk about, like, there's there are a lot of people who mystify these pre-modern, or pre-agricultural even societies. It's like, it's like they were absolutely equal. They weren't, but they were way more equal than we are. Mm. Um, but even in our society, you can see this perversity showing through. A society that is explicitly founded on egalitarianism in its founding document has produced the most unequal society in human history. All right? Some of that's capitalism. Some of that's liberal modernity. There's all kinds of things contributing to that. Um, so that, that irony is not unique to ancient man, and somehow agriculture screwed it up. It's been something we've been exacerbating, and the only thing historically has fixed it has been catastrophe for somebody, and historically speaking, generally catastrophe for everybody. Mm -hmm. Like, revolutions might be good for the majority of, pop of the population, but it's catastrophic for someone. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, revolutions aren't what happens. Most of the time, if you look at like most of anthropological history, what you have is a long, slow collapse. Mm -hmm. 
one of the things I've been fascinated with is all the elements of pre-capitalist society that would have led to capitalism actually existed at the end of the ancient, you know, Greco-Roman world. It existed again at the, at the second realm of the Islamic empires, and it existed again in um, in high in high Confucian, you know, the high Confucian Chinese dynasties. I I kind of hate lumping them all together because like China as a unified history is somewhat of a modern myth, but whatever. Right. You're with a lot of things. <laughs> um, so there have been several times in history where capitalism could have emerged. There was a mercantile class that could have became something like a bourgeoisie and it didn't happen mm-hmm. because those societies just collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the case of, say, the the great push of modernity in 1492, which was, which was the Reconquista and all these ideas that we like a lot of our racial notions come from this this transition from the high middle ages through the renaissance into modern into the early enlightenment a lot of our notions of basic economics that are like proto-capitalist come from this time period but even that empire did not come up with a way to structure reinvestment into production in a way that produced capitalism. It actually structured reinvestment into extraction and thus eventually collapsed from its own weight and fragmented into um, the various independent settler colonial states that we see in Latin America. Mm. Um, it's not that they didn't have elements of capitalism there, they totally did, but they didn't reinvest in production, they reinvested in extraction, which doesn't give any payback. Mm. I mean, it's, it's amazing that something that obvious took us like a thousand years to figure out, but that is truth. Otherwise, you think capitalism has existed in perpetuity, and you can't explain why the modern world is really different. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what does that have to do with my critique of Hagelin? Our desires are set up by the context in which we live, and in the context of which social community bonds have broken down, and they have broken down in ways that I don't think you can just will them back into place. Um, the incentives for them to function are not there. Um, you would have to retrain your desires or the desires that you have don't go anywhere. And I want to give an example. This is going to piss a lot of leftists off. Okay. All right. Defunding the police. Okay. I actually support total police abolition, but I don't think I don't think that would be a world without something with some without some kind of community protection force. Mm-hmm. The history of police goes back to Ireland. Um, in the um, the first formal police department that I know of was started in Dublin when they had to pull the military out to fight Napoleon, and they established an occupation force of local parties, which was the constabulary. That was the model brought over to Chicago, brought over to Chicago in the first formal police force. The proto-police forces we had in the South were largely slave patrols, so they just deputized those people. But there was a sheriff system that was largely voluntary and not paid. I mean, it wasn't actually – it was semi-voluntary. You were, everyone was supposed to do it or you buy your way out of it. it just You can see how this would lead to problems. Um, that could have got conflated into modern policing. Those two ideas merged. Um, okay, fine. I don't think there is an easy way – to make the police more accountable. But what I can tell you is the least likely way to do it is to partially defund them. Uh-huh. 
dealing with the problems that generate urban crime, giving people more ability to make better choices for themselves, all right? I don't think, for example, if we were to get rid of all the problems of poverty, that all drug addicts would go away. And I'm sure Clune would agree with me. Sure. Why I read this book. Oh, did you read his, uh, his memoir? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. Okay. And it comes up when he talks about retraining desires. Like, you have to deal with these desires that you get that are that are destructive. Yeah. You can't just say, we have free time, we'll live a better life. Yeah. Yeah. All right? Clune is a, a former heroin addict, right? And so, right. The, and he wrote a really great, uh, really interesting memoir about it. So, so those of us who structured with addiction problem and watch people fall to it know this. We know it deeply. Yeah. Um, Marx's answer to that problem, for the most part, was shoot them. Mm. He's going to put that out there. I mean, like, he basically thought that the lumpen proletariat were unreformable and didn't really define it as, you know, as much. Or if they were reformable, it was only in so much that they just became normal proletariat without dealing with the fact of what created them. Um, the, for your listeners, lumpen proletariat are those who live outside of the class structure because they parasite off gaps in a legal or social system. Um, so Marx would consider like unlicensed sex workers, uh, soldiers who did extortion racket, uh, ex-soldiers who did extortion rackets, proto-gangs, this was lumpen. Okay. All right. What Marx did not articulate, but was articulated later by sociologists, is lumpenization is common in an underclass that doesn't have any options to formally participate, even as an exploited class. Mm. And so it generates all kinds of asocial problems. You just remove the police from that equation, the most violent forms of that will dominate the most deracinated areas. So the poorest people are hurt either way. Right. Conservatives are not wrong when they say this. Mm -hmm. They are not lying. What they are lying about is their own role in it. So police force has basically been kind of a low-key form of human sacrifice that we've done to keep these other things at bay. Hmm. You know, I mean, that's a metaphor for me. I don't think we're literally sacrificing, but we are kind of literally sacrificing people, actually. So, you know, yeah, there's we, all yeah. kinds of... Go yeah, ahead. There's all there's all kinds of counter incentives to this. All right, you take away prison abolition, you don't come up with any other way to reincorporate. You don't come up with the, you know, the magic watchword of of progressive reform. It now is restorative justice. You don't come up with a way to do that recently. What will replace that is the mob, mm -hmm. and brute violence. However, this should never be a reason not to take the more radical option. What I'm saying here is the radical option takes responsibility, accountability, retraining, and a lot of people who are victimized by the system would have be hard-pressed to have the skills needed to replace the very system that victimizes them. Mm -hmm. And yet that is traditionally what the left used to demand of people. Right? We were not saying, please, state overlords who work for capitalists give us more, we were saying we have to take charge of our own lives. Mm -hmm. All right? That is not merely a democratic preposition. I'm actually going to say some things that are going to shock some people. I am beginning to lose faith in the possibility of representative democracy because people do not have enough skin in the game to hold it accountable. Mm. It will always drift towards patronage. Mm. 
it will always drift cards towards, um, to use an analogy from software design, technical depth with entropy in the system. It leads to short-term quick fixes that create over-complexity. The over-complexity collapses. There is a check in capitalist society and creative creative destruction for some of this, but it doesn't get rid of all of it and it accumulates over time. And frankly, the only thing historically that has ended a long cycle has been a social collapse or a massive war. Hmm. This is dark. Uh, you warned me uh, before <laughs> beforehand that this would be uh, the darkest show that uh, you've been on, uh, you've, that you've participated on here about. And so, and so far you're, you're correct about this. Um, and so, well, and yeah, let me, so, Let's go back to the police uh, discussion just real quick. Um, so I've heard other people say, may take more incremental steps towards defunding the police, quote unquote. Uh, and so, I mean, and so like, for example, um, instead of if somebody is passed out on the street, instead of calling a police, you call a social worker. And so you uh, ramp up social workers roles to to intervene in those kinds of situations the workers are bound by laws to intervene with the they intervene with the police and if they do not they cannot keep their license you cannot partially deal with these problems see what i'm actually saying is the incremental steps don't need to be happening in a reformist way the incremental steps need to be adopted from say Honestly, what the Bolsheviks or Hamas or a lot of our villains do, which is they have been building up countervailing institutions, and frankly, outside of what were illegal unions, the legalization of unions actually has seemed to make them a lot less, a lot less accountable, weirdly. Um, we've only really seen this in large scale in religious institutions who build up counterpower, but ultimately, they normally use it for nothing. Hmm. I'm not going to lie. I mean, when we think about the kind of power the evangelicals had in the late 70s, early 80s, and what they squandered it on, they squandered it on a deal with, with Republicans, which really, if I'm going to use Christian metaphors, you chose mammon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, right? Um, and with the, I mean, and I feel like kind of like culture war issues, like, you know, gay marriage and abortion and all these sorts of the, the, the war horses of evangelical politics. I feel like those were always just sort of cover, um, almost just like PR issues for, um, for what was really the politics, which were um, conservative economic policy. So I'm writing a book on, on Christopher Lash, and he makes this point a lot. Now, I don't have Lash's particular romanticism about, about the family, extended or nuclear, but... I will say that he was absolutely right in pointing out that the people who defended, you know, American tradition in the '80s, um, including the evangelicals, were def were actually defending this rugged evangelical, rugged evangelical, like like frankly, settler colonial, to use the term that maybe your listeners don't know as well as it isn't, like this ethos of going out and taking things that was itself profoundly against the Christian tradition that it was emerging from. Those people were not good, pious Christians. They weren't even good, pious Protestants. They were people who were setting out even from that. Yeah. Um, the, the tradition of America has always been rapid, abrupt breaks with the immediate prior tradition. That's even true for the majority of our religious institutions, which are now breaking down. Hmm. Um, so this deal 
with the anti-traditional forces of which conservatives have supposedly been bostering, you know, boostering tradition, including religious conservatives, was never real. I mean, frankly, from the standpoint of traditional Christianity, most Americans have always been heretics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this in and of itself leads to this weird, like, like pseudo-traditionalism that you see in America that is decontextualized. And that's also why, like, Protestantism gets so weird here, I think, mm. is because it's cut off from its historical roots, you know, in, in Europe, which it's barely even existed there now. It's almost the secularization tendency which Protestants actually represented at the end of the hand has actually won, but they initiated that tendency. Yeah. Yeah, well, we had that show we did about um, the Mark Knoll book, um, Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, and I think we we, um, we covered quite a lot of this um, all the way back then, right? So this is this is not new uh, new material that we're new ground that we're breaking, but it just looks different in our particular moment, I think. Um, and so, yeah, so to me, like fighting on abortion, fighting on uh, fighting on gay marriage, fighting. This is epiphenomenal to the damage done from the family in the first place. But I'm also going to say that, frankly, the family that they were defending only ever existed amongst upper-middle-class people yeah. for the most part until the 1930s. There was companionate love matches uh, amongst working-class people, but they were they were never with this clear work divide. And the reason why it wasn't clear is because most of that labor, because it was not in the wage labor sector but in, like, barely not peasantry, was – was household because there was no distinction between the workplace and the household. Yeah. All right? And that was the way most working class people lived. Only the upper class had that clear distinction until after the 1920s. And so the myth of the nuclear family as a predominant thing in America really only existed from 1930 to 1962. Yeah. Like, like it existed for a generation at most for everybody. Yeah. That is not to say that we didn't have like we didn't have nuclear families. We had extended families before that and but they didn't work in that way. The, the, those divisions of labor between men and women were much more nebulous. Um, I mean if and if you read like pioneer literature, even like watered down nostalgic pioneer li- literature like Laura Ingalls Wilder or whatever, that is clear. Yeah. And, like, yeah, and certainly if you read, um, as I have, you know, in my academic work, I, I've read a lot of like Jewish um, immigration narratives, right? Um, and, and certainly you see um, urban life in the early 20th century was anything but a, a, a mix of family values, <laughs> right? right. I mean, and they were, I mean, they were brutalized by the economic conditions of having to work um, pre-union um, in, in factories, right? And so, and so, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a terrible, uh, like, life right to live and so um and yeah and yet we there is a nostalgic tendency in american christians um and and nostalgic in the sense that they're nostalgic for something that never really existed there, there there's this which is i think the the appeal of of like those thomas kincaid paintings right these right. these world without a fall um that's what we're nostalgic for and it's it's not only divorced from reality but it's also i think kind of divorced from any kind of serious christian faith as well but so when I, when I think about these addiction problems, right, we have many of them in our lives. Mm-hmm. We're encouraged to have them because it makes us good consumers. We're encouraged not to take them too far because it makes us bad workers. Mm-hmm. 
But if we were just to remove the context of work from our lives unilaterally overnight, without retraining those desires, what would happen? They would run rampant. Yeah, and this is what Clune is kind of talking about. And, and right. He's talking about, he, I think he calls it a spiritual case for socialism or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, the idea is that there are better and worse things to desire, right? And and that's what, I, frankly, I think a lot of the left can't stomach right now is that sort of judgment um, that to, to kind of qualify things as better and worse uh, decisions to, to do with your freedom, right? And I'm not quick to kind of say personally to somebody i'm not quick to personally judge somebody their their whatever preferences tastes whatever um but it is a question that we avoid i think to our peril like um a, a couple of weeks ago there joe rogan was twi- t- trending on twitter because apparently i never listened i mean i don't i'm very into or like ambivalent about joe rogan honestly mm-hmm. I, I i don't hate or love the man um is like you're supposed to i suppose um but he said something about how video games people who just sit around and play video games all day are wasting their lives and like that to me it seems utterly uncontroversial <laughs> Um, but the people on the left were freaking out about it, right? Because it was a kind of judgment call about uh, the proper way to wear to to live a life, right? Um, and 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 honestly, for the clip I heard him say was that the problem with video games is that they're really fun, right? And and that they are they're they're so good to play, and you end up you can if you're un unconscientiously Very playing like them. like social media, which we're all addicted to, too, are actually dopamine addiction machines. And that's exactly right. And that that is something that the left is, you know, maybe not uniquely, but also um, susceptible to, I suppose. But libertarians will just say, you know, like, well, that's a trade-off you make, but that's an invalid trade-off. Well, the left just kind of wants to have it both ways. Yeah. I, you know, the, the, the old left was actually radically sometimes sometimes anti-progressive, honestly, on a lot of this stuff in ways that would be like, well, we're going to shoot the homosexuals. Like, yeah. like at first they would offer it out as as a large-scale relief, like we're going to abolish marriage, people can do whatever they want. When they realize that that's hard for whatever reason, um, they the older left reversed on itself. And on marriage and stuff, to, you know, China, which I don't consider anymore a socialist society, but at one point it tried, became super conservative on these issues and still is in a lot of ways compared to us. I remember talking to a Chinese student who lived here, Chinese Chinese proto-bourgeoisie, sweet kid though, and you know, but comes from a lot of money and one of the but ideas that's, about that's the Chinese student who will be studying in America though, right? Right. Yeah. But but I, I find it funny because all these people always tell me that China is a socialist society. I'm like, they have more billionaires than we do. Yeah. <laughs> they have a higher Gini coefficient than we do. They're dependent on us. Their entire mode of production, the overproduction that they can continue their which is ending now, by the way, that now being subject to the business cycle like everyone else, was dependent on us eating it. How do you see them as separate from us, mm-hmm. as a different kind of society, except that they have a nationalist authoritarian thing? And a lot of people, socialism, and this is what I am a little bit worried about with Poon, I don't think it's probably true with him, is wanting someone to come in and offer another kind of authority for their lives other than themselves. Yeah. See, that's the, that's the answer... That, that I'm afraid people will take from Clune, even though his, his – I don't think he's arguing that. But like, oh, we don't need freedom. It's not about freedom because 
because we need judgment. Well, you need freedom for judgment to matter. Yes. I, I think what Clune, and this is where I, I, this is what I like about Clune's work, honestly, because I feel this way. I have never had a conversation about this kind of thing with him. I've had very mm-hmm. kind of surface level conversations about my work or, or just very other basic things. Um, and, um, but from what I take of his work, this is where, where I kind of come in line. It reminds me very much of Matthew Arnold. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I wouldn't, I don't know that he would actually, enjoy that comparison um he didn't seem to hate my dissertation but <laughs> but uh but he um but he um it, what he's arguing for what's necessary and what he's arguing for are kind of other institutions that shape and form desires and tastes right and and, and be they religious and and he talks about being a buddhist uh and, and that being a kind of um break uh, between his desires and him and his and his actions, kind of, um, mm. and or be they other kinds of institutions, I and so there there is a kind of authoritarianism in there, but it isn't it isn't like you know glossy boots authoritarianism, right? Um, it, mm. It's a different kind of authoritarianism. It's it's more voluntary, I suppose, um, and and I think this is what Matthew Arnold is arguing for when he talks about culture all the time. Is this uh, is this habit of mind where you sort of constantly are checking your own self and your own desires and your own beliefs and your own dogmas against reality. Right. And so that is a kind of, um, conscientious, uh, device that this activity, at least that does reduce the absolute freedom of the self. Right. And I think, um, that for Arnold, that ends up as anarchy. Right. And and so I think that, in some ways, maybe what I see in Clune's work that I like is what I like in Arnold's work as well, is this, I guess, religious impulse to it, this this kind of um, moral kind of break on our own kind of um, individual desires for the larger good. And I, I probably come out sounding like a total fascist or something to some people by saying this, but I do think it's important. Well, so I am... One of the funny things about me is I talk about discipline all the time. I think I'm one of the few people on the left who doesn't shut up about it. And I don't mean like party discipline or holding a line. I mean like if you believe the system is messed up, using that as an excuse not to better yourself is actually capitulating the one thing you have as an individual to the system itself. And that is an abnegation of personal responsibility whether you have free will or not I, you know those pe- those people bring up those questions that are allegedly distorting the point i don't care yeah um whether agent you know to some degree i think agents like simple agency denial is itself ridiculous because if if they're right i also don't have agency to believe that i don't have agency so shut up <laughs> um so th- you know, I do agree with the you know to, to before people jump onto me. I actually think countercausal free will is ridiculous, and but I don't think that's an important question. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, when I talk about discipline and responsibility and personal and like personal responsibility for this, my my framework has largely become closer to Lester McIntyre's. I do not think, however, that answers anything for the social framework because what you do as an individual does not scale up. Mm-hmm. It, there is no one-to-one relationship between you and the totality of the society. So, for an example, I always tell people that moral arguments are irrelevant to larger social problems. 
people think I'm saying that you can't make moral choices as an individual. You totally can and should. All right. However, in aggregate, it won't matter. I agree with that. Um, honestly, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I, you know, Lionel Trilling has the line, the moral obligation to be intelligent. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Trilling wrote his dissertation about Matthew Arnold. So he's clearly drawing on him, but, um, but I do think that there is a, uh, a conservative t uh, belief like uh, like it is a kind of a religious belief among conservatives that I mean it goes back to Thatcher's there is no society there's only families right um, mm -hmm. and it, the, the fact that if that these things do scale up right um, naturally and I don't believe that that is true I totally agree with you on that um, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said in fact um, I think you do have an individual uh, obligation to um, be the best version of yourself that you can be, right? And which requires doing the hard work of looking honestly at yourself, honestly, um, but uh, from some moral position that you've chosen. Um, but I also think that you can't depend, you can't just um, abdicate um, politics then and actually striving for social change. Um, because of, and I think that's where a lot of Christians, even progressive Christians go wrong as they think if we just make more people believe in Jesus, um, society's problems will all go away. Right. And, and I don't think that that's ever been true and never will be true. No. And in fact, the people most attracted to Christianity, even from a Christian viewpoint are always going to be the people who are most problematized. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, except for saints, I guess. But yeah. I mean, like, like even if, even if you take like the traditional re reading of what the, the, let's say, emblematic message of Peter being the rock of the church. Peter's the screw-up apostle. Mm -hmm. He's he's the biggest. He's dumb. Mm -hmm. he, he's a traitor. He's impulsive. Yeah. He's impulsive. <laughs> he's inconsistent. Um, the better apostles are like everybody else. James <laughs> Just. Um, Paul, <laughs> Paul, the the weirdo who is there, guy didn't even mean it. Jesus, I'd be mean, like, like um. So the lesson from that, emblematically, you know, if you re take that kind of traditional viewpoint, is that it is based on the weakest link. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not a Christian. I think some of that is kind of Christian nonsense, <clears throat> but um. Canceled. In Hashtag canceled. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know me better than that. Yeah. But I mean, like, if you're going to take a sincere reading of Christianity, that should be the lesson. Yeah. Um, but it also has some pretty profound implications for having a lot of faith in that institution as anything other than a vessel for liturgy. Um, and a vessel for liturgy as practice for the community of heaven or whatever, right? Because, like... You don't breed a lot of competence. Um, your worldly yeah. competence is not your strong suit. Okay. I, I So if you're talking about like sort of whatever low church Protestantism of my variety that I've grown, <laughs> that I've grown up in, um, um, I agree totally, right? But then, I mean, what do you do with someone like Dorothy Day, right? Who does, um, I think, embody what I'm kind of talking about. She is someone who's, you know, has this metaphysical belief right? This, this faith, right? That is a moral compass, um, and an authoritarian you know, she didn't ask the church to do it. What's that? She didn't ask the church to do it, nor did she ask the state to do it. She embodied those virtues and even believed in something like a socialist state, but would not even take state tax breaks 
because she didn't want that help. Yeah, well, I agree with that. That's why I say, but that's still politics, right? So she's still- No, it's it not a political position. I mean, what is it was a Simone Veil who says that like the abolition of politics is only possible towards towards like you know from a Christian standpoint towards the move like moving towards an eschaton like it's not yeah. possible now. No, I and exactly. what I, what I will tell people who want to engage in politics is you do so at the peril of your soul. It is also necessary. Yeah, well, but yeah, yeah and, and, and Christian terms here, but. No, it's a, that's a Christian commitment. That's her Christian commitment was doing the things that she did politically, right? Um, Oscar mm-hmm. Romero, another version, mm-hmm. uh, another version of this, right? Um, th- within the confines of the church. So I'm going to bring some Jewish stuff into here that I think would maybe like, would maybe because I one of the things I don't like about Christian thinking, frankly, is you're all or nothing like BS about sin. Um, in in, uh, in 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 Hebrew thinking, there's three different words for it. Yeah, it is actually kind of where the Catholics can sort of semi-linguistically justify their whole venial versus mortal sin. Although the differences are actually quite quite profound. Like um, some sins do translate to what we would take. I always I always love the fact, for example, when we teach humanities, we lie about hymartia. Um. Hi Martia means tra- it means to miss the mark. It is the word used in Aristotle for the tragic flaw. Uh-huh. It is also the word used in the New Testament for sin. Um, and somehow we just missed that those things are related. But um, ritual discretion and even moral discretion in Jewish thinking is sometimes morally necessary. Yeah. And I'll give you the, I'll give you the obvious example. You are religiously required as an able-bodied Jew to defile yourself to bury someone. All right? And it's a paradox. That, yeah. Yeah. It is a defilement. Yeah. It is not a, like, you are defiled. You have not morally sinned. In fact, to do it, you are committing a mitzvah. You are committing a moral obligation it is, but to but you are having to take on another kind of sin to do it. Mm-hmm. These trade-offs in the Jewish mind can only really be dealt with by the fact that one, you will do the ritual obligations. You have now taken on the obligation to purify yourself, and two, you have taken on your obligation um, to live with some of the moral things you're going to have to do to do that. And that leads to a much more complicated universe mm-hmm. in which you're taking the bet that God will forgive you. Um, but it's a bet, kind of, because, again, we don't have, like, we, I mean, Jews in general don't have this a all-loving God image. God is all-loving, but also a lot of other things. Like, there's no Satan to get you out of this. Yeah. Um, in Christian thought... There's a tendency to simplify these notions. I do think there are there are traditional Christian thinkers, even some Protestant ones, although not a lot, who deal with the fact that there is no way to live a life where you live all the virtues at once because of the structural, I mean, because of the fallen nature of man. And I, I think Christianity kind of accidentally, frankly, gets onto the way individuals exist in structures. And also the way virtues are not are contradictory. Like the the 
Alistair McIntyre is right that if you try to come up with a unified system to which you can always be virtuous and have no conflict, you are either going to end up with a system that is essentially sentimental or a system that is impossible. Yeah. All right? The logical exit, if you try to take utilitarianism to apply to all things that could possibly have sentience, for example, you end up being negationist not just of human life or your own life, which is already an uh, absurd implication that is always there. Mm -hmm. You always should sacrifice yourself in the utilitarian calculus. But the ultimate absurd implication, and if you, if you consider pain as worse, you know, pleasure, is not pleasure alone is not enough to justify pain, you end up with eliminationism of life itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that like David Benatar, who like thinks this is a good thing, is actually a consistent utilitarian with this criteria, and he's one of the only people I think has ever been so. Mm -hmm. But it ends up in a completely anti-life position. So also with deontology, you end up having to make sacrifices that are you know to maintain consistency that are greater than that that are absurd. Like I will never lie to the point that I'm going to throw people into you know, the mouths of Nazis or whatever, as the common refrain goes. But that is the implication of those kinds of philosophies. Traditional virtues were about strengths that either were decided for you socially, religiously, or in our world, let's be honest, we make existential commitments to those virtues. The, the, they're non-arbitrary in the sense that if we if we view them from a secular perspective, um, we have to find the virtues that fit things about our being um, that suit us, and we have to do a lot of work to come to those virtues. All right, and I acknowledge the validity of virtues that I cannot embody, mm -hmm. and I also acknowledge that I cannot hold all virtues simultaneously, equally, in the same way, and do that. And I also acknowledge that in some ways the systemic problems that we have mitigate against virtues as individuals. And so when we try to think, just change the system, but not the context of which we have unthinkingly accepted as our virtues, then we will just replicate what we have done in an anarchistic fashion. And I and like I'm actually sort of a low key anarchist, but that kind of anarchy is bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like no, I understand. Like, you, yeah, uh, the anarchy you're talking about is as good as more of like about sort of individual flourishing, right? You know, right, it, it, <laughs> and right, and, and like yeah. and like people being able to really have the decisions to make the commitment yeah. of what they think is good or not. Yeah, but that does to get back to Clune's point where I think he's right, and then you know I'm going to take this back into these systemic problems about what I'm going to challenge people to do now. Yeah. Um, that requires judgment. It requires discipline. It requires the willingness to admit that that any life that you could pick, let's say you make the commitment that you think the hedonistic life, and even in the kind of pixelated, dopamine-addicted way of video games, is worth it. Okay, fine. Make an argument for it. Make an argument for it with your life. If that's what you want, fine. But then you have to admit that people have, have reasons to judge that as deficient. Mm-hmm. Maybe not ultimately deficient, but they also can see, like, I'm not going to pay for you to do that. I'm not going to sacrifice the fruits of my labor for you to do that. And unless you believe in that the post-Cassidy society has a level that it can maintain itself without human labor, which I do not see the evidence for yet, mm -hmm. um, 
we don't need nearly as much labor as we have. Like we, we a lot of our labor is for, for just for accumulation and capital. It's stupid, but but we would have to put in labor to maintain this. Maybe we probably have to put in a lot less, frankly. Yeah, well, but we'd have to do it. But I mean, you're also getting into questions of work. Um, and, and, and like, it's, I mean like the existential, well, I'm actually using labor for, for, for a kind of tricky technical purpose that maybe your, your audience won't get. I see labor itself as neither good nor bad. And I actually enjoy a lot of labor. Yeah. I do not enjoy work because I have a wage commitment and a hidden power relationship in it. And since I work for the state, the power relationship is super obscure. It is not clear. Yeah. Who I actually well I don't you see I don't even directly work for the state. Who I actually am labeling for is it society as a whole? In some grades, I used to think that, but now I don't. Well, as a teacher, that's very tricky. I mean, and me teaching at the college level, I mean, there's some students will come at you with this. I, I'm some sort of like service provider, uh, and, right. then, and then some for some students, I'm sort of this. Uh, I have this much more kind of like almost rabbinical uh, role for them, right? And so, I mean, the the, the nature of teaching itself is very kind of, um, you know, and as a public school teacher, for example, my students are not my clients, right? My parents, even even though they pay one one hundred thousandth of each kid who goes in there. Right. salary are not really my client. My client is a society that has decided collectively that it is worth doing this. Yeah. And is and do it but you know what? One of the things COVID has made it clear what they're actually concerned about is childcare. They're uh, not even really concerned about education. Yeah, that's one thing that's yeah. I mean I, that's probably a whole nother show um to talk about <laughs> to talk about education and COVID. Um but and I would love to do that with you if you'd be willing at some point. But I'd be willing to come back, but what I have to say like uh, it will be another very, very dark show. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. in fact I've been thinking about the function of education and capitalism and it's pre capitalist roots for a long time and I'm just going to say I think our notions of education are pernicious and I think they like many other things in our society actually produce the opposite of what the people who engage in it believe and yeah. I would like, yeah I don't disagree I'm, I'm very equity engine yeah I, yes, I agree. Um, and I think it's particularly um, folks who work in sort of elite institutions. I mean, um, and who tend to be in the humanity side, like the most kind of like quasi, quasi you know, ostensibly radical uh, types of, of people who don't understand the, the nature of their, <laughs> of their own complicity. Or they've never even bothered to think about the nature of their own complicity in this in, in, in an unequal system. Right. Um, um, but yeah, let's let's kind of save that for a little bit. I, I let's, just, let's, let's but so now we have to introduce the virtues and what we live in now. Yeah, I am not apocalyptic in what I'm about to say. I don't think America's going to go away today or tomorrow, and I don't think like we're, we're everyone's like, oh, we're going to split apart. We're not going to be around for four years. Frankly, collapses don't work that way. It took the Roman Empire a thousand years to die. Yeah. It only took it 250 years to rise up. It was dying far more percentage of its of its existence than it was ever a, a flourishing up and coming thing. And the reason why we avoid that in our you know, in our historiography of that is only looking at the Western Empire. Right. And the final death uh, of Byzantium, of of pan ethnic Christianism, what had the result 
in it actually of creating first the idea of Europeanness, then when you started introducing stuff in Africa, the idea of whiteness, which is a you know if I was a Christian, I would consider race a satanic concept, mm -hmm. um, because it divides. You know, like like racial tensions divide the working class in idiotic ways. If I was religious, in this way, racial tensions divide the possibility of a universal church mm -hmm. in a very real way. Because obviously, churches are still highly segregated in mm -hmm. the world, it's, except for some Catholic churches, and that really depends on if they keep separate masses for different groups or not. In there, like I, I've had the experience of going to a church, um, one of the most precious churches that I've been a member of um, back in Cleveland. Um, that was inner city church and um, mm -hmm. very like, um, and we were sort of uh, located right on the cut, right at the literal borderline of where gentrification was happening. Um, <laughs> and so we were like literally on the street corner where that division was. And so we had um, a good mix of your kind of urban yuppie types, you know, and then um, along with like some really destitute people with lots of social problems um, mm -hmm. and, and addiction problems and stuff going together um, and a lot of different ethnicities. Um, and so, that, I mean, that I think in situations like that, and, and then you're talking more almost like, I would consider us almost like a church plant mission more than an actual church at that point. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but I think there are those kinds of cases as well in which um, it does kind of cross those lines that you've been talking about. But I, I, I interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, that's I mean. The, the, I grew up in a transition in a transitional neighborhood. I live in a transitional neighborhood. I think I'm one of the only white people on my street. But, um, you know, it's also kind of a weird sign. Normally when you show up, like, it's like, oh, well, neighborhood's probably going to be gentrified soon. And if it's not, it's going to fall apart. Like, that's another paradox. Like, the anti-gentrifiers aren't often honest about what happens when things aren't gentrified. Like, yeah. you've been to parts of Ohio, parts of Detroit, parts of Georgia, parts of the South where gentrification doesn't happen. It's usually pretty ugly. And, frankly, we're now seeing things where, like, the gentrification's even within a racial group. Like, enough uh, Latinos have come and come back with money after getting education, for example, going to parts of California, and they actually gentrify it, it, it even staying with men's along racial lines, but displacing all kinds of older, poorer, mm -hmm. first-generation immigrants. That is a pattern, too. These are the systemic things that you have to deal with, and if, like I said, if I was a Christian, instead of digging my head into the sand, I would deal with it. Well, I talked to you today about I've been surprised at how, how willing to not just irrationality but the outright heresy to deal with the fact that a lot of evangelicals made to deal with with the devil with Trump. Um, a lot of people in general have. I mean, like, the, the COVID hoaxism and that weird, frankly, and I'm going to use the term that liberals are throwing around, but I think it's kind of true, it's a death cult. Mm -hmm. um, um, around Trump is literally trying to avoid the cost that you got played, all right? Like... Like, Trump is a spin man, transparently a spin man. He's not even a good authoritarian, all right? Now, even now, though, there's all kinds of systemic playings. For example, the, the GOP establishment is more and more coming out and condemning his recent play. That actually makes Trump more popular amongst the deracinated base. That's the only people that makes it more popular, yeah. but they don't like the Republicans either. Right. Not really. Um. And we're not just talking about never Trumpers anymore. I mean, like the Federalist Society was like, you, you know, it was like his tweet the other day is grounds for impeachment. It's about delaying the election. 
Yeah, it's yeah. it shows such a blatantly juridical disregard for the law. And frankly, it's not. I don't personally think Trump is really thinking that. I think he's trying to distract from the fact that he's overseeing the economy that's lost the most GDP since we've recorded it, including during the Great Recession. Now, some of that is for the, some of that is for the economy because he's been so inconsistent and unable to do any kind of unifying power plays, which would be easy. All right, he actually had in the beginning of this crisis. Um, a bump in support. He squandered it in a month. Even George W. Bush, who was also a squanderer of popular support, took years to to actually screw up that bad. Yeah. Because at least he, he was smart enough to screw up on other people who weren't in this country. And I hate to be that cynical, and I hate to be that callous, but it's true. Yeah. Um, but Trump has screwed up on all of those regards. And so people now have to believe vast conspiracies that are completely irrational to maintain support of him. Because, and they're doing this, frankly, because if they had to admit they got played, what does it say about them? I, I agree. Um, I totally agree. And I'm just going to like locate this within my observations of my church folk um, that mm -hmm. I, you know, that I go to church with, not necessarily at my local church, but you know, in general, mm -hmm. right. People I have gone to church with in the past for sure. And frankly, some people I go to church with now, but, uh, but the, uh, but there is this kind of denial about the consequences. And, and frankly, it's also a function of new media. You can always go and find a source that gives you some kind of, even if it's Breitbart or whatever, right? But it gives you something, something to cite. You know what I mean? Cite your sources. They, they find something to cite. But I think at the heart of it is just this unwillingness to ever admit that you made a bad play um, and, and that you kind of... You have to, because to admit that means you have to admit that you were willing to sacrifice a lot of your stated moral principles uh, to support this person on, frankly, economic and racial issues. Um, and, and I think that um, they don't want to ever have to make that, that support. And did you see recently there was a poll? Um, and I predicted this was going to happen. Um, people were talking about, oh, certainly he will have lost some of his evangelical support. Um, and so famously, 81% of evangelicals voted for him. Recently, there was a poll, maybe a month ago or so, um, that nated 82% said they will vote for um, Trump in, in 2020, in, in November. Um, so it's up a, a notch. And I said that was going to happen because I think um, you've seen a lot of people who are kind of like me, um, but maybe less committed to the institution than I am, um, just drift away from it and drop the identifier, right? Um, and so what would be left in that group um, would be even more hardcore Trump, right? Um, and I think you're seeing that kind of play out in some recent polling. Um, and I think it's it's an institution doubling down on its mistake um, and using whatever paranoid kind of media that they can find to uh, give it the whatever, the veneer of logic, at least. For years, evangelicals have been depending on the fact that the mainline churches had been hemorrhaging people towards them because they offered a way of life that required commitment and a separation from the world. Yeah. They have proven that to be a lie, that they never really meant it. Right. I agree. Um, yeah. And the, those kind of evangelical churches that were growing, we're talking about these mega church kind of institutions. Um, I think that accounted for the vast majority of the number, the numerical growth that, right. that they were. Yeah. Because local. They're dying fast. 
Yeah. Oh, they are. But because you, you, all that time, you're local. They were not only taking from mainline churches; they were taking from like small, like evangelical denominational churches, right? And yeah. so those things have been whittled to the bone for the most part, and particularly since COVID. Um, and, and I think that um, absolutely, I think you're going to. Um, I don't know that. I mean, you are seeing uh, amongst younger people a, a some a trickle of a return to kind of mainline and kind of more liturgical forms of, of Christian worship. I've seen a lot of people go Orthodox and yeah. to like more conservative Catholic, but Catholic. And there's also like the Catholic progressive movement, which has st- stood a lot better than the namby pamby postmodern post evangelical yeah. progressive movement. Because yeah. frankly, it doesn't sound like those people believe much. Yeah, but. Um, well, I had that interview a few weeks ago with, um, uh, about weird Christianity. If anybody's interested mm-hmm. in that, um, you can go ahead and listen to that, but with Ben Crosby and Michael Farmer. Um, but, mm-hmm. um, but I do want to say just one quick note about that church growth of evangelical, of the, mm-hmm. of the mega church evangelical, tr- uh, um, tradition. Um, that was largely coincided with a boom in the suburbs. Right. And, and to me, it was like, this was the way suburban, um, I don't know, just sort of moralizing played its out, played itself out uh, in in those spaces. This so for me to be an upstanding member of this community, I'm going to wear my golf shirt and khakis to this church uh, in the strip mall or near the strip mall, um, right? And then we'll go to Panera afterwards, right? And so right. <laughs> it's funny because I was I was I was watching Trump's most recent appeal, and I, I want to actually get to where I think the leftists have been played to, and because I, I have I have more actually condemning thoughts for them. But um, one of the things about this is, like, Trump's now going, on, we're going to save the suburbs. They won't need to yeah. fight. Okay, but here's the thing. The wealth of the suburbs have – one of the ironies of the aughts is when no one was looking, de-urbanization actually reversed itself. Where I live now – People of color, low-income housing, they're being pushed out of the cities into the suburbs. But it's also because a lot of the wealthiest parts of the suburbs have already left. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the children of the suburbs have already left. There's no future for them there. There's no infrastructure for them there. There's, There's not enough wealth for them to go and try to rebuild it themselves. It's already lost from the very economic structures these people want to want to provide. So the not in my backyardism, the nimbyism, has actually moved to the cities, and like Trump's appeal is to this last little pittance of a dying, a dying structure that is really, really dying. I mean, like I'm watching it die in real time. These it is now exurban schools and suburban schools on the edges where this is going. So the suburbs gets moved further and further out are into the city. One, that in and of itself is going to ruin rural life because it's going to eat it up mm-hmm. into suburban life, which is also going to be a liberalizing force. It's like these people do not understand that they are actually the social force leading to the destabilization and making these forms of life that they hate more and more appealing, and they're losing numbers to it, and all they can do is cry about it. And you know what? No one's going to care. No. In fact, a lot of people are going to rightly go, you made a deal with Mammon, it's time for you to pay, and we're going to want a pound of flesh too now. We don't just want your soul anymore. Hmm. 
And what do you, what form do you think that'll take? Um, this kind of retribution that you're talking about. Um, you're gonna increasingly Christians are just not gonna be a voice in the public sphere. When you act, your entire community will, when people act out, your entire community will be blamed. Um, you're gonna see more and more pushes to remove, like you know, the courts have been like aggressively trying to give these churches additional powers because they no longer have the social force to maintain. Mm-hmm. Eventually, those courts are gonna be taken back. I think one form, um, and I've talked about this before on this show, that it's going to take is, is particularly it's going to come down hard on Christian colleges, um, mm-hmm. the the kind of like the CCCU version of Christian colleges that are kind of, um, uh, there's like a statement of faith you have to make basically to teach mm-hmm. there. Um, I think those kinds of colleges are going to find themselves in a lot of um, regulatory trouble um, with the turn of an administration. I, I think between that and, and frankly, the capitalist um, educational society means that that's not long for this world. Yeah. There's going to be both regulatory pushback. A lot of these exemptions carved out for you by, by juridical fiat are going to be carved back out mm-hmm. um, because you're not going to be enough of a representation unless you want to support an authoritarian government to do that, which maybe you do. And then the, and then though, when that eventually fails, which I almost always do, um, people are going to burn churches. Mm. And if they support them hard enough, they'll burn churches with people in them. Mm. You need to study Latin America more. When these deals are made, you want to study Mexico, like Mexico, the Cresero War, and I actually kind of cited them Christians a little bit, but it was an overreaction to the fact that the, that the Catholic Church had sided with really vicious, nasty forces for 200 years. And they were not a force, you know, for for hardly anybody. So the peasants would protect them in certain areas, but in areas where they have been particularly vicious, like in the northern Mexico, they stripped it to the ground. They hung the priests from black post mm-hmm. because they were associated with the oppressive government and they were okay with lining the streets with them. Yeah. So one thing... I mean, just to push back on you just a little bit, uh, and I'm not disagreeing with your your criticisms of, of Christians. I, I'm just, I I think you might be overestimating the power of Christianity. Um, no, I, I actually don't think. I, I think most of what you're going to do lose. Like, if you if you were to support make a deal with like an authoritarian movement, like a real one, like like not just Trumpism, which is quasi authoritarian. Yeah. But like a real paramilitary or thing, that's what will happen. What I actually think will happen, frankly, is it'll be a whimper. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. I think that, frankly, right now, there just aren't that many serious Christians. I, I just want to throw it out there and say, I, I think a lot of people, I think most people who go to church regularly even, um, go to out of like social standing obligations for sure or or a place to find friends or you know what i mean or a place to um do these kinds you always have these critiques of the dsa right Mm -hmm. um and 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 it being kind of ineffectual um because it's just basically a social club i'm I'm reducing your critiques to you know a a great degree i know but um in, in some ways i think there's some value to that frankly of just having a place for socialists to gather together um and making them feel less less alone if that was the only function of the dsa i would think it has some value um but um but i do also understand its shortcomings um i follow you frequently on on all your social media right um but but also i but i think the same 
thing goes with the church. And I think that you don't really have a a serious ideological commitment uh, in most Christians. I think it's a, it's a thing in a small town like where I live, where you go to church um, as a way to kind of demonstrate your upstandingness in that particular community. And it's an hour on Sunday that you commit. Um, and, and that's basically the extent that it has when the point, when a church becomes controversial, those people will just disappear. And, and I think that it's going to, they're just going to close because of, you know, economics at that point, there just aren't going to be people to open the doors. Um, I think the vast majority of them will disappear because of that. So, I mean, like, I don't actually think we're going to have a Cressera war in America. I think, however, if that was the deal Christians made, that would be the result. Let's think about the S- the Southern Baptist Convention, right? Um, so they're mm-hmm. like in the midst of a big. I- that, that's the one kind of evangelical denomination that is in the midst of these ideological like like controversies and they are like literally making decisions that are mirroring what you're talking about, about whether or not to make alignments with, you know, frankly, you know, white supremacy. Right. And and so I think that that is one church that's would be really in that one denomination. They've been heading that direction. I mean, they made to me, they made that by explicitly endorsing the RNC to the point that like one of the churches in the community I grew up with, um, place called Haddock Baptist. When, when Mercer University left and Jimmy Carter left, they also left for those reasons because they felt like, even though well, I think most of them were Republicans, but they felt like it was a step too far in the aughts to, to go to where you were explicitly endorsing Republican political platforms that had no relationship to theological points. Yeah. Um, so we see a lot of that. But... but I'm, I'm going to like flip it on its head a little bit, um, what I'm saying here. My criticism of the DSA is similar to my criticism of, of Trumpist evangelicals. Um, the DSA wants a radical transformation to break the Democratic Party in half, but it also doesn't want to empower Republicans. Mm-hmm. That's not it's possible. Growth, <laughs> actually, it, it, yeah, it's impossible, and its growth is, is, is predicated actually on its failure. It grows. It grows in membership. All of its membership booms are when it fails. It is structurally unable to deal with the fact that it is dependent on its failure to grow, um, and that it is reviving the parts of the Democratic Party that it hates um, in massive ways. And AOC and the Overton. If someone tells you about the Overton window, push them out of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like push them straight out that way. It's not real, so they're not going to get hurt. Um, there is no Overton window. You're moving the terms of the debate doesn't matter, and in fact, it's predicated in. We just saw this. All right. We were able to generate enthusiasm even with alienating progressives, um, with Joe Biden. But Joe Biden's gonna is winning. Not because Joe Biden has anything to offer. He has absolutely nothing to offer. (laughs) I agree. It is because the incompetence of the current president. But because of that, he also does not feel the need, and the Democrats in general, to even give lip service 
to the things they were giving lip service even three months ago. The the platform that they just released um, yeah. without universal health care and, and, and every other thing that had been without brought into the conversation. Without, even things yeah. that weren't even economic, like marijuana legalization, yeah. which would actually reduce a lot of the stuff um, that involved black... I mean, like, everything structural that would support even Black Lives Matter movements has been stripped out. Right. The cultural conversation is now trying to shame people for wanting that. And marking it as somehow racist, which is nuts. Yeah. You see, you see all this essentialization of traits um, coming out of in racial talk around this. This is all a con game. And if you are, if if you buy into this, all right, you are a self traitor. Yeah. Um, and you are like, and that, and like, I, I'm, I'm putting that in unequivocal terms. Um. So we just revitalized the center of the Democratic Party for it to go and get a bunch of winos, rhinos, you know, Republicans and they own or whatever, you know, uh, the, the, the people being exchanged by the base to go into the party. And there's structural nowhere for them to go. There is no reason, and I've said this for 10 years, for the current batch of progressives to be any more successful than the last five generations of batches of progressives. The progressives have not won in the Democratic Party since FDR, and they only won then spuriously, and by being willing to make, frankly, a commitment to limiting the progressive things to the white middle class, because at least then you still had a sacrificial lamb, and none of that is being looked at. Yeah, the the New Deal, like, I mean, there's been a lot said late recently um, about how it was a new deal for white people. Right. Um, and, and yeah, that was, that's kind of historical fact. However, point. let's also remember that the demographics of America at the time were not as such as they are now. Yeah. So the population that was being sacrificed is much smaller and that's how it was justified. I can, I just know, I know that from history. Yeah. So it was a deal that benefited the majority of Americans with some sacrificial lambs that were racialized. And I'm not saying that to defend it. It is gross, disgusting, and morally reprehensible. Yeah. But it is also a fact. Yeah. However, America will be, I, there will be no, there will be no single demographic that will dominate the United States until we are. Pr- you know, properly miscegenated like the rest of the set of colonial states. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. You mentioned about Biden's like vacuousness, right? I've always, you know, joked with friends before about how, you know, the Republicans would just vote for an empty suit just because they're a Republican. Right. And, and here we are, you know, liberals <laughs> pushing out an empty suit when given the um, opportunity to run against someone who's just wildly unpopular right and so i mean literally joe biden um i i still wonder about what's going to happen to the conversation once debates start happening and and his mental decline is up there for all of us to judge i don't Um, think we're going to have debates you think that that's going to not happen i i mean i think that if they could keep it from happening it's in their best interest i think here's the thing it's in the best interest of both sides right now because both of them look ridiculous yeah (laughs) so so like where, that's where we are. What what I think is like liberals aren't dealing with is it, do they really think they will be able to bait and switch Joe Biden in for someone who couldn't win the primary, like Kamala Harris, to then have them win in four years when Biden steps down from age, which is likely what will happen. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and I honestly think there's that a, is a dumb call. I think we're about to go through another 1970s where we have a bunch of four-year term presidents, um, which happens in America about every, actually about every three business cycles. There's a long secular cycle. Um, there's a scholar called Peter Turchin who's not a Marxist, so you know all your non-Marxists can read him, um, who actually documents this pretty well. There, there is. You start having political instabilities on the up and down end of cycles, and you start seeing short-term presidents where that you just just throw the throw the SOBs out every single cycle. We saw that in the we saw it to some degree um, in the. I think you see it like in the you see it to some degree in the twenties. You definitely see it in the eighteen and like the after Lincoln, and we saw it in the seventies. Um, we're at the end of another cycle. We're three business cycles in, and they're getting progressively worse. Yeah. Um, for this one, for external reasons, not just endo- reasons endogenous to the business cycle, but like we're going to be in a moment that like progressives are probably going to win big in this next election. Not progressive. Democrats are going to probably win big in this next election. Um, but so are, frankly, like Q cultists and stuff like that. Like we're, it's just going to go in every direction. Yeah, that's, I mean, something about, I mean, when I was in grad school in the, what, mid, early 2000s, um, I, I, there was all this kind of utopianism about the democratizing nature of social media and this sort of thing. And it's just going to liberate us and give everybody a voice. And the voices, I mean, it, it does give everybody a voice. And those kind of progressive liberal uh, you know, arguments from that day really look laughable now because they're the ones freaking out about the voices that are amplified by uh, by the social media, right? And so, yeah, because of this, you are going to have Q enthusiasts in Congress uh, because of social media, right? And and so, and I just feel like there's a, a way in which liberals, particularly, are susceptible to kind of thinking of technology as purely liberation, right? And and not really kind of grappling with its um, with the paradoxes that it brings. Liberals and leftists suck at dealing with downstream effects. Yeah. yeah. Conservatives are good at gaming downstream effects and using social breakdown to... And when I say conservatives here, I don't mean like ethically conservative people. I'm not talking about the coils of the world. Yeah. I'm talking about I'm talking about lizard brain conservative politicians who don't really have any values at all. You're Mitch Val- Mitch McConnell's, right? Yeah. You're turkey necks. <laughs> um, the, those people know how to game bad systems. And like when we talk about COVID and, and education soon, and also your listeners know, I am going to eventually watch Nostalgia. I just had a lot of stuff on my mind. <laughs> um, I will do that. Um, but when we talk about COVID and education, I'm going to give you myriad examples of conservatives knowing how to use the breakdown in an overcomplicated system to hide social responsibility in ways that means that that even local accountability is impossible, which also tells you they don't believe what they say. Yeah. I mean, to me, to me, like, the one thing I've learned about the last 20 years of American politics is when I came into this, I thought, like, well, the Democrats are stupid. They don't really have any ideas, but Republicans have ideas. They're just dangerous, bad, and awful. That's not even true. We don't have ideas. <laughs> like, certain platforms are going all over the place now. I mean, like, and we saw this on, like, certain things, like, when liberals would attack Trump on North Korea. Trump was incompetent in North Korea, but very few people attacked him. That they, they were like, it's immoral to deal with this leader. That reverses a lot of stances that we have had for, like, we wanted yes. 
liberal leaders to make and race reduce tensions until now. Yeah. All right. Um, that was universally well, lauded when Nixon did it with China. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Trump screwed it up, but Trump screwed it up bad, actually. But that wasn't what we were attacking him on most of the time. All right. Um, another thing is like I, there's this weird liberal love of NATO now, which is absurd. All right, but I will admit that it, it helps them not deal with one conservative argument that's actually kind of true that also very, very far, very, very far leftists have also made. I mean, leftists will say it's imperialism, conservative arguments will say it's like the European social democracy doesn't want to deal with either the physical cost or the downstream social cost of having to provide their own um, defense. Mm hmm. Liberals getting mad at Trump for pulling out, you know, a fifth of the force in Germany to start reducing that. Um, and the fact that the Christian Democrats also um, responded in the way they did, they don't want it gone either, indicates to me there's a lot of truth to that. Mm -hmm. That one, that social democracy is kind of benefited by, you know, imperialism and the stability that it brings but also that to the conservative side of that is also true. We are actually supplementing um, European social democracies with NATO. Yeah. Um, and and even by not by a lot. I mean, like for example, France has the largest military in Europe, and it does spend like one percent on its own military, and it's not really as, as, as it's not really as part of NATO in the same way. Germany does spend like one percent towards NATO, but it but they don't. It's money. They're not sacrificing their. They're not having many of their own troops. They're not having to build up. Like, they're not having to vote these discipline cauteries. Like, it would have an effect on their society. So, uh, ironically, though, one of the side effects of this is it will lead to more nationalism in Germany, mm. which will probably destabilize the European Union. Um, mm. However, it's also, like, we shouldn't be supporting this off of, off of off-screen effects of what is essentially a bad policy in the first place. Um this is also why, like, stuff like Bernieism and DSAism and, like, their focus on electoral politics in one country will not matter. All right? Like, I'm all about, like, capitalist reforms, and one of the reasons why I was not hostile to Bernie and was a skeptical supporter was that I think we need things like Medicare for all as social goods. I do not think that is democratic socialism. I do not think some of the works programs and MMT programs he was going to implement were even going to be possible for very long. All right? Um, I'm a harder-minded socialist than that. Mm -hmm. I know economics enough to know that, like, that'll eventually lead to stagflation. One external shock from anywhere in the system, whether it's a pandemic, which we're going to have more of, whether it's an oil shock, whether we have a resource scarcity, will blow that up. That is not a resilient economic system. We've already seen that in the 70s. Again, another economic system that largely actually weirdly helped conservatives, even though it was a very socialist-y, quasi-socialist-y one, that came into existence basically because the elites in the United States were scared of the Soviet Union enough they were willing to cooperate and break down some of their social barriers. I mean, the only time that we saw an economic decline that disproportionately hurt the, the top 20% of the United States was during the Great Depression. Mm. You actually did some, you actually see some for the very lowest in society go up. And the thing is, we've also framed the Great Depression that we forget there were three other depressions that were almost as, or, or, well, I think one of them was actually worse, between 1870 and 1930, that because of the trauma of the Great Depression and because it existed at the beginning of modern media, we have forgotten the rest of the 
economic cycles before then. Um, so, but now we don't have, you know, and this is actually weirdly another one of my arguments against, like, people who think China's going to come in and save us. Because China doesn't scare our elites enough to make them play nice the way the Soviet Union did. And I think the Soviet Union was not, was not a very effective society. If it was socialist, it is a bad, like, society for socialism to produce. It is, it is tragic. I don't want to live there. But it was different enough and scary enough that it was an actual ideological competition to like ruthless capitalism in a way that scared elites into realizing that if they continued to let most of the people not profit, they would not exist for very long. Mm -hmm. There is nothing like that now. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I talk about people living moral lives and embracing virtues, they need to do this with the, rep with the reality that they're living in a system that's going to rapidly change. And I do think we're going to see the rise of China, but I also think it's not going to be very long. The kinds of problems that we're seeing in the capitalist system is also affecting China. It's also having instability problems. It's also pulling geopolitical stunts um, that, that, that have to do with, like, its own issues for resource scarcity, its own inability to dump its production somewhere, and the fact that its that the system is so authoritarian that you have to have a nationalistic myth to really hold it up. A nationalistic myth, by the way, which comes at the expense of all kinds of peoples. If it's the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, our Tibetans, are are the Manchus, are the uh, the the uh, Korean ethnic autonomous zone. Um, the, the other thing about China is Westerners don't know enough about China to know that some of the things that we perpetuate actually play into Han mythology that's not historically true. The idea of a unified Chinese culture is a myth. It would be like us claiming that Western culture goes all the way back to Roman times, which I guess we do, except that that culture wasn't really Western the way we think about it. It wasn't even ethnically all us, you know, Europeans. It was a pan it was a pan continental, pan racial empire. Mm -hmm. Um and so, like, we can't trace our history cleanly to it. And when we have tried to do it, it was largely off of, you know, post-Enlightenment post 18th century mythology that we have written into our educational system. All right? And it's kind of an accident of, of history that we did that. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, you know, it doesn't, that, like, we sometimes think it comes from the Renaissance and Renaissance history and classics, and it sort of does, but it really comes from 18th century German philology, which we then replicated um, in English departments that compete with it mm -hmm. in, the United, in, in the United States and England. So, like, these histories have that context in their myths, but we don't need to buy into other people's myths to replace our own, and they're not going to work. So we have to be, like, ironically, one of the things I'm saying, I guess, to end this on, and I, I'm kind of want to go back to this clune thing. We've been all over the place, but I'm going to bring it back here. We have, to dis we have to start disciplining our own desires and deciding what we really want other than just socialism and an easy life. I want an easy life. I want a better life for everyone in our society. I want a better life for everyone in the world, all right? And I realize that that sounds utopian, but I also think... Like we have to, we have to know that even under this, we will not be in a system that will just fix our problems for us. There are certain kinds of problems that are not just fixed by socialism. Child abuse will still probably happen. Um, there'll be much less of it, but it'll still probably happen. There will still be cruelty in the world. There will still be all kinds of. There will probably, unfortunately, even though I think racism as a product of modernity, I actually don't think it's just a product of capitalism. It emerges kind of simultaneous a little bit before it. Um, 
but it's tied into developmental capitalism. But I don't think racism is going to go away because I don't think ethnicism is going to go away. And ethnicism, unfortunately, is universal to the human experience. Um, so it'll now that we now that that Pandora's box is open, I don't think it'll ever be completely put away. It's going to be something we struggle with forever. I do think, however, it'll look very differently in a post-capitalist society. Um, some of the stakes won't be as high, frankly. But it'll be a problem that we still have. There's no magical fix for this. We have to cultivate ourselves to do something about that. And, you know, my call for Christians is like, you know, it's always been like, if you say this stuff, mean it. But really, don't, don't have, don't, it, it, it kind of makes me mad that you need a quasi, you know, a semi-atheistic, Non-Christian, who's who's theological. Yes, I was exposed to Christianity, and I have you know I have Catholics and and um, Eastern Catholics and Pacific and stuff in my family, but like, you know, a, a basically secular Jubu yelling at you about um, your inability to understand your own way of thinking. If <laughs> you said the beginning of that last bit that it sounds, I know it sounds utopian and silly about wanting everybody in the world to have a better life. I mean, if that sounds silly to a Christian, then you're probably doing Christianity wrong, right? I mean, that's sort of, I mean, the idea, uh, I mean, Christianity is meant to be this kind of like, you know, global South New Jerusalem, right? You know what I mean? Right. Um, and, but it also, I think it also does. I mean, one thing I'll give Christianity is it doesn't believe in simple, happy endings. Yeah. And that's actually, uh, other other than the eschatology itself, which I guess is like the ultimate happy, yeah. right? But like other than that, and like honestly, sometimes my my thing about like apocalyptic Christianity, and you know, I've written a lot about apocalyptic stuff. Um, <laughs> See your but, book uh, of poems. <laughs> yeah, but one of the things that I, I think it's a cop out. Yeah. Like, oh yes, I agree. Yes. I mean, I think it's like it's an easy out for the the fact that Christianity both says we live in a broken world. And it's going to stay broken, and there's hope after his life. But also, you are you are you are actually charged as a point of stewardship to try to make the broken world a little bit less broken, even knowing that it is impossible to do. Yeah, I know. I I I'm sorry, Derek. I, I yeah. No, go ahead. I mean, like that to me, like the the relationship between socialism and Christianity, that like that like the atheist. Um, like reactionaries used to point out in the 18th century, I don't think it's false because that impossibility is something like we also kind of believe in. Um, and then when we stop believing in it, we tend to produce monsters. Um, but like I, I also don't think that like socialism will be a happy ending in and of itself for humanity. There will be other problems to deal with. There are other problems on the horizon that we, are, we might be able to kind of deal with in a socialist society better. Um, but they're not going to go away. I mean, resource shocks. Even though we live in a po we live in a post scarcity scarcity society, but there will be supply line resource shocks forever. There's going to be cost that we cannot that just abolishing capitalism aren't going to avoid to the way we've developed in the last hundred years. There's there are things that like th there will no there will be no easy fixes for them. Yeah, and there will be no automatic fixes for them. Yeah. No, I uh, and I think that um, going back to um, the idea of uh, living with the paradox of no, like living as if 
you can fix the world knowing you can't, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that goes back to a kind of metaphysical faith in something, right? And, and to be able to exist in both places is both, I mean, paradoxical, but it's also kind of beautiful in its own way, right? That, that's, that's the kind of thing that makes us admire people, uh, the saint of lost causes, right? I mean, there, there's a, a way in which um, that's kind of what we are as Christians um, called to be. And I would think socialists um, as well, because if, unless you're naive, you know that there will still be problems in the world, right? But one of the things we were talking about about the left is the left actually doesn't want to look at certain things, certain trade-offs, because it is systemically naive and thus easily conable, frankly. Yeah. Um, it is easily played, and this is not this is not new. This is not this is this is something that's happened. Like turning leftists into anti-Semites, very common. Um, yeah. Playing certain kinds of frustrations into like authoritarian fascism. I mean, like. Very common. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, th- there's a kind of like satanic inversion to use a Christian metaphor, right? That happens with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And it requires not double think, but an absolute like clear headedness. Where like I guess the, one of the only things I like about Gramsci is that optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect. The thing is though. I think you even have to be careful with the optimism of the will. It's more like I will. I am willing the world to change, knowing that probably ninety nine point nine percent of the time this is going to fail, and I have to constantly critique myself not to be part of that failure. Um, but but if I don't do anything, if I live in total abnegation. Nothing gets better. I this is where I keep. I've been reading Matthew Arnold for a project I'm working on, and mm-hmm. and I have I, I, reading him. I have to say this to you on the air. Actually, you remind me of him. <laughs> like you remind me of a leftist version of Matthew Arnold, um, who himself has a lot of weird intersections with Marx. I have to say, mm-hmm. um, but um, when um, when he's, I mean, he would identify himself as a liberal who's constantly critiquing liberals. Like, and I think you do the same thing for the left, right? And, and I think that there is this commitment to seeing things as they really are, right? As he would put it in his in his culture. I would love to read Culture and Anarchy with you and uh, and have a show <laughs> where we're well, you know, like I have read very, very little Matthew Arnold in my life. Like I've read like, you know, when you go through an English an English BA, like whatever like the preliminary like I know I've read some Matthew Arnold Matthew Arnold critical text, but it was mostly like, oh that's that old dude and like and that was back when criticism was all moral and stupid. And yeah. We're all we're all hip new critics or post structuralist or deconstructionist or new historicist now, and, um, and that's why nobody reads Matthew Arnold because nobody teaches him because everyone is working off this assumption about him that isn't really matched up to the reality of his words. I think, um, and so I would someday you know I know you're a busy person, so I'll just put it in the back burner there. But um, but the other idea though is there is something kind of like um, th- there's a way in which like socialism and and Christianity they have a lot of things in common in this kind of utopian vision. Right. But, um, but the idea that there is a kind of a, you have to be able to live with it, with the paradox of things. And so and I'm, I'm trying to think of like, there are many examples, but like for Christians to kind of, well, for there's a church 
right across the street from my house who has mm-hmm. a, a church sign that right now says, uh, uh, Jesus is coming soon, hopefully before the election. Okay. And okay, that's funny. And I see the crowd. It's not funny, but I mean, <laughs> I can see how people who would think that's funny, think it's funny. Um, but, but to me, that's exactly what you're talking about in terms of abdicating the responsibility. I, yes, we are like, we do have this eschatological hope for an ultimate um, time of, of prosperity and peace. Right. But mm-hmm. That only that also comes with the responsibility of doing of leaving the world a better place than you found it, and statements like that are abdicating that responsibility. And I I would argue there is a lot of beauty in just sort of immersing yourself in in the difficulty of life, right? In in the things that are bad and trying to make it better. I mean, that's where the best relationships are forged um, by by doing those that kind of work with other people. Um, And I think that kind of Christianity by abdicating it so long um, has like really missed out on life itself, right? I mean, that's what life is, is entering into the struggle with people and trying to make it better on a, a recent episode we recorded. I don't know if it was the Cynthia Ozick one or the other one that was recorded around the same time, um, or at the same time, actually, literally. Um, uh, we talked about uh, mutual aid societies and stuff right and, and i feel like like finding a that that's where your christianity should be right now right if they won't let you go to church okay good form a mutual aid society find a way to provide daycare for people who don't want to send their uh, or, or a homeschool environment who don't want to who have to work but don't want to send their kids into a a, a, a com- compromised classroom right um do that kind of thing find a way to distribute food um that to people who need food find a way to help people pay rent um that need to help pay rent i mean that's that's um not going to solve the world's problems, but you're still making the world a better place through a kind of political action that is in this case motivated by your faith that you state to have. Right. I think my, my, my only thing about that, um, that I, I don't disagree with, I just want to remind people. No, this is what I'm all about. about <laughs> yes. that this is, that this is necessary for you. This is about you. All right. Um, this is about you, making yourself a better subject, being a better person, doing things that can help other people, learning how to have social accountability. Um, but it is not a fix for the larger problems. And don't use that as an excuse when people try to fix the larger problems. Um, yes. Because we're going to have some... I think I think 2020 is uh, not going to be... It's not like. We're we're living in a time where a bunch of chickens are coming home to roost, and if we thought 9/11 was traumatic, we got nothing. I think, and it's not going to be like terrorism, and I'm not even sure it's going to be war. I think it's going to be a lot of systemic failure that we can't deal with. And I think I actually think like conspiracy cultures and all this stuff are going to show up as a proxy as a bad proxy for the worst parts of religion. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. There's a, I mean, Q functions exactly as a religion functions. Um, and, yeah, there's there's a way in which conspiracy theories, really, I think religious people are so susceptible to conspiracy theories is because there's barely a difference structurally in in the worldview of a conspiracy theorist and a, and a, a devout religious person. Uh, they, they, are, they function in the same way. And so, yeah, I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
anything else? Have you got enough off your chest for this? Uh... Yeah, I do. I, I think I have. I don't know. This is the most coherent thing. I do. Th I actually did read that. I read that uh, when you gave me that article, and I read it kind of cursingly. And I reread it, and I'm like, oh, this will actually ground a lot of what I'm thinking about because, like, yes, there are these structural things that I and I, I don't think Clune is really dealing with, or he is, but like in a kind of smug, like, oh, it's about desires, and that's how capitalism works. I'm like, well, no, it's not. <laughs> but um, like, that's the way, how part of capitalism works, and it's not even the part that actually holds everything up. Yeah. Um, but. The second part about judgment and discernment, it actually did relate to, like, how do you have judgment? How do you have individual discipline and accountability? Um, because if you don't, you can't be a subject for change, all right? One of the things I yell at leftists about, you know, there's this, they, they have their own eschatology, particularly Marxist. Like, things will get bad enough that capitalism will have its final crisis, and the working class will have to rise up. And I'm like, yeah, but Marx also thought that capitalism socialized and skilled workers in a way that they could actually run things and you're not in a time where that's where that is happening so just having the immiseration will just lead to social to social degeneration it does not necessarily lead to a revolution with people actually able to replace the system of which is doing this to them and if they can't you have actually made things worse yeah and so like Blind eschatology are only looking at half of the equation, and the equation that makes it feel like you're going to have a simple answer is beyond irresponsible now. Yeah. I mean, like, it's morally reprehensible. Um, I think that there are people um, who see, like, religion and, like, socialism as antithetical, right? As, like, uh, I, I am not one of those people. I, I sort of, I see them working very nicely together uh, with obvious difficulties. Right. Um, but, um, but I also, but I think that um, in some ways I feel like you can, if you feel like religion is the opposite of your politics or those politics are the opposite of your religion, you can look at the failings of that other and, and see a danger for yourself. Um, and, and so I, as you're just saying, if socialists um, see religious thought as a failure based on the idea of eschatology, then um, perhaps look at your own eschatology <laughs> and see and see the potential uh, falls uh, for you down the mm -hmm. way there. Yeah. Um, um, another thing I then I want to just kind of plant uh, as a, a future potential conversation. Um, this conversation reminds me of years ago when I read Isaac Asimov's uh, Foundation. Um, it's it's very uh, I found that book. Have you ever read that book? Um, yes, I've read tradition. Um, like it, it seems to me, I mean, somebody who, I mean, it's that I forget his, I forget Harry Selden, I think his name was Harry Selden, <laughs> the of history, which actually reminds me a lot of like Peter Trinchin and, Cle and Cleo Dynamics, actually. But yeah, yeah. But the idea of kind of like um, looking at material conditions now uh, through the you know, use of all these various disciplines and trying to predict, you know, thousands of years of, of human history uh, down the road in order to save civilization, I feel like it's a weirdly relevant. <laughs> conversation to have right now um and at some point if you'd if you'd be willing i'd love to sit down and talk to you about foundation i know there are many of those books but if we could just talk about the first one yeah uh, i'd love to because because i do think there are um there's there's a lot of stuff to talk about in there but there, there's a i do think there's a lot in there because i'm reading these peter these people who study uh elite competition dynamics and like map on so, like social tensions and like they do Instead of just looking at one 
causal like matrix, which can just be noise, to start overlaying them. So they overlay um, political violence with the business cycle, with um, with legal patterns, with with voting patterns, and they do come up with like stuff that does look consistent enough to not be noise. Yeah. Um, and it's not entirely transhistorical in the way psychodynamics is supposed to be, but it, it's it's actually there's you can actually their variables are fungible enough that it, it, it might be a problem, but it also looks like there are ways in which prior societies do rhyme with current ones once you mitigate for things that have completely changed. Like, um, so for example, Malthusian calculus doesn't apply anymore. We live in a we actually do live in a post scarcity society for necessities right we, we do like it's it's a matter of distribution not not product i mean we we waste more food oh yeah almost than we make i mean like every day uh, food so much food is thrown away in restaurants alone right that could right yeah. i mean like and what is it that the pope says every bit of thrown away food is a uh, is stolen from the mouths of the poor yeah yeah um yeah so you know oh uh, yeah it's one of those things that even like a conservative a conservative Pontiff like uh, uh, Boniface um, Benedict, Benedict, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Ben- I mean, Benedict and Francis have way more in common than people think, and it, I not just I saw some of that movie about them, not the whole thing, but um, but in their 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 edicts or their their statements as well. I what think what movie? Um, I just happened to like. Oh, there was a, there was a movie about their friendship uh, with. Uh, Jonathan Price and somebody else who played, I forget who played. Oh, Anthony Hopkins played Benedict. I think um, mm. I, my wife was watching it and I watched like the last 40 minutes of it with her. And so um, it, was, it was very cute. Actually, it was, <laughs> it was a very cute movie. Um, so anyway, um, so I, four at least four episodes have spun out of this. There was the nostalgia one that we've talked about doing for a while by uh, Tarkovsky. Uh, I want to read eventually culture and anarchy with you foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've got to talk about, um, Education and pandemic, I think. I mean, I had a show right at the beginning of this with Todd Pedler where we sort of speculated a little bit about what this was going to do. Um, and that was more based on kind of pedagogy. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that um, I would like to have a conversation with you that's um, also dealing with kind of these kind of structural um, and social issues um, that have to do with the, the intersection of this pandemic and education, um, not just higher, but but um, all the way through. So yeah, I think I think we're going to see massive changes re- recover. One, I think a lot of people are going to leave the profession is the moment there's a signal of the economy getting better. Yeah. Like, um, and I don't think it's just going to be COVID. I think too much, too many quiet parts have been said loud now for a lot of people to continue like with their naivete about what people actually want. Yeah. I know we're almost two hours into this conversation, right. so I don't know who so else is not, listening. <laughs> so I don't All know right. who else is listening, but I've even thought myself that, you know, maybe I should uh, at some point um, go get a counseling degree. I feel like I'd be a pretty good, uh, you know, personal, you know, individual counselor just in case something happens, you know. So uh, right. I don't know how to do I'm going to fund this, but maybe I'll do it someday. So, um, but anyway, Derek Varn, it's always such a great pleasure to have you on. Um, I thank you for giving me two hours thank of your time. You. And uh, it's always great to, to talk to you and to see you. Um, and yeah, we'll get together and schedule these uh, these four, at least four episodes coming up. Yeah, we'll schedule them. And then, uh, yeah, hopefully the next one won't be as much of a Jeremiah. <laughs> I don't even know what to call this one, but I, I've, I've jotted down some numbers, uh, some names. All right. Anyway, take care, man. Take care. Bye.